on Losing One's Head. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Paula Santa on Losing One's Head by G.K. Chesterton. When I was a little boy, I had an imagination, though this has long been washed out of me by the wordy abstractions of politics and journalism. For imagination, real imagination, is never a vague thing of vistas. Real imagination is always materialistic, for imagination consists of images, generally graven images. There is a mad literalism about imagination, and when I had it, I turned everything that any one mentioned into a concrete body and a staring shape. Thus, I would hear grown-up people using ordinary proverbs and figures of speech. Pale, worn-out proverbs, battered and colorless figures of speech. But every one of those phrases sprang out of me as fierce and vivid as a model written in fireworks. For some reason, I had a particularly graphic visual concept in the case of nautical metaphors. Thus, when I heard that my uncle on a sea voyage had got his sea legs, I pictured the most horrible bodily transformations in my uncle. Had my uncle now got four legs? Or had it been necessary for his two original and, to my eye, unobjectionable legs to be amputated by the ship's doctor? Did the new legs arrive as sort of extra luggage, or did they loathsomely grow upon him, like hair or fungoids, with all the awful unnaturalness of nature? I pictured my uncle's sea legs as two green and glittering members, covered with scales like fishes, and bearing some resemblance to the two fishtails with which exuberant Renaissance artists sometimes provided tritons and mermaids. Again, when I heard, in some seafaring connection, that the captain kept his weather eye open, I assumed with faultless infantile logic that he kept the other one quite shut. And in some dreams, I rather pictured the captain's weather eye as being some separate and eccentric kind of eye, like that of a cyclops, an eye of blue sky or lightning that opened suddenly in his hat or his coattails, and blazed through black fantastic tempests, a strange star of the storm. But there were many cases, even among more terrestrial and commonplace metaphors, where the material metaphor photographed itself on my fancy. One of them was the phrase about a man losing his heart. A man, considered as a material envelope, seemed so securely done up that how the heart could get out of the body was a problem analogous to that of how the apple could get into the dumpling. Perhaps, I mused, the phrase about a man having his heart in his mouth might throw some light on the somewhat revolting phrase, which spoke of a man with his heart in his boots, where there was clearly no thoroughfare. From this, my childish taste turned with a certain relief to the easier and more popular picture of a man losing his head, which seemed the sort of thing that might happen to anybody. Indeed, by this dream of symbolic decapitation, 
I was much haunted in infancy, and am not infrequently inspired and comforted even to this day. Whatever other metaphors may mean, this metaphor of the lost head has some primary and poetic meaning, and I have written many bad poems, bad fairy tales, and bad apologues in my industrious attempt to find it out and declare it. The connection between the animal and intellectual meaning of it became close and even confused. I vaguely thought of Charles I as having lost his head equally in both senses, which is not perhaps wholly untrue. When I read of the miracle of St. Denis, who carried his head in his hand, it seemed to me quite a soothing and graceful proceeding, like a gentleman carrying his hat in his hand. St. Denis did not lose his head anyhow. He carried it in his hand as so not to lose it, as ladies do their ridiculous handbags. Indeed, this drifting and dancing dream of decapitation in which kings and saints figured with gothic fantasticality had some kind of allegory in the core of it. The separation of body and head is a sort of symbol that the separation of body and soul which is made by all the heresies and sophistries, which are the nightmares of the mind. The mere materialist is a body that has lost its head. The mere spiritualist is a head that has mislaid its body. Under the same symbol can be found the old distinction between the sinner and the heretic, about which theology has uttered many paradoxes, more profitable to study than some modern people fancy. For there is one kind of man who takes off his head and throws it in the gutter, who dethrones and forgets the reason that should be his ruler and witness. And the horrible headless body strides away over cities and sanctuaries, breaking them down and treading them into mire and blood. He is the criminal. But there is another figure equally sinister and strange. This man forgets his body with all its instinctive honesties and recurrent sanities and laws of God. He leaves his body working in the fields like a slave, and the head goes away to think alone. The head, detached and dehumanized, thinks faster and faster like a clock gone mad. It is never heated by any generous blood, never softened by any healthy fatigue, never checked or warned by any of the terrible toxins of instinct. The head thinks because it cannot do anything else, because it cannot feel or doubt or know. This man is the heretic, and in this way all the heresies were made. The anarchist goes off his head, and the sophist goes off his body. I will not renew the old dispute about which is the worse amputation, but I should recommend the prudent reader to avoid both. End of On Losing One's Head by G. K. Chesterton